And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Jilomenes Chilena, and I may not have that name exactly right, of the Foundation for Economic Education. And uh, Jilomenes, you prefer to be called Z with people like me. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I... Um, I learned about you just recently, and I found out that you are the new president of the Foundation for Economic Education. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, where did you come from, and what was the economics like in the place where you came from? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was born in 1981 in Lithuania, which was then uh, part of the Soviet Union. So let's say countries like Poland and and Hungary, they, they were outside of the Soviet Union. They still had socialism, but at least they had more freedoms. While we were in the Soviet Union, so in fact we had as as much socialism as it happens, or as much we had it as bad as it gets. Put put it this way. Um, so I was I lived in Soviet Union until it collapsed, and I lived there afterwards. But I basically have spent around eight and nine years in there. Uh, it's really hard to describe to people who have not lived there what the situation is like. But basically, to put it very bluntly, uh, you have no freedoms, or you have very little freedoms. Uh, you have uh, awful living conditions. I mean, awful compared to what people have in the United States. And you basically have no hope. Uh, that, that, I would say, are the three... Uh, the three worst things. Uh, a couple of details. So let's say uh, I was raised in a family uh, which had a one-room apartment. And when I say one room, I don't mean one bedroom. I literally mean one room. And we were considered to be to be lucky. Many people lived in apartments which resembled something like dorms uh, where students live. So imagine raising a family, a couple of kids. Uh, in a, in an apartment block where you have to share shower and uh, kitchen, this this was the situation in which uh, in which many people lived. Well, that sounds so different than what Americans are used to, and um, our listeners may be wondering why we jumped into this so quickly. And before we open the mic, I asked you to, if you'd be willing to share with our listeners what it was like living in a socialist country. And I'm just um, flabbergasted, I guess is the word, that people in America, with all the freedoms and with the constitutional republic, are tempted, and, and very much so tempted, to want to embrace socialism. You came from that type of a system. Does it strike you odd that Americans would want to go that way? It's nearly incomprehensible. I mean, if I had an honest conversation with someone, I would lack uh, words to describe to that person or to understand why that person is talking non such such large nonsense. I mean, I my guess is that most people cannot even imagine how bad socialism is, and therefore uh, they just say, they just say these silly things, 
Well, I mean, trust me from someone who has actually lived there. You do not want to live in a socialist country. If you are a worker, you do not want to live in a socialist country. If you're a manager, you do not want to live in a socialist country. If you're a scientist, you do not want to live in a socialist country. The only people who lived relatively well in socialist countries were party members and members of secret services. Uh, I'll give you another example. So let's say we used to have shops that were special shops only for members of Communist Party. Means those shops had some Western goods in them. Those shops had some, let's say, good item, items in them. But regular people, they were not even allowed to come into these types of shops. So whenever someone says that socialism is equality, whenever someone says that socialism makes ordinary people thrive, that's absolute nonsense. I mean, regular people who had no party connections or who didn't have relatives in high places, they are worse off in socialism. Yes, that is helpful for sure. What happened then in Lithuania? Um, finally, uh, the Soviet Union gave up, was it, on Lithuania and they got their freedom? Well, <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Uh, well, Soviet Union collapsed under the weight of its own lies. Mm. So remember, 1985, uh, Gorbachev comes in and he announces uh, Perestroika and Glasnost, which are two policies which basically meant rebuilding and publicity. So what it meant, uh, actually, for the first time in Soviet Union, in, in the in the sort of existence of Soviet Unions, people could start talking that things are not good. Ah, put it this way. Um, only, of course, it was to a limited extent. You could not, you know, criticize communism as such. But for the first time, uh, there was some freedom given to actually people started sharing stories of how things, how bad things are. Um, and I think that was the one a huge nail in the coffin of communism that people actually, they could air their grievances. You could, they could say, you know, things are bad or things are much better in other yes. countries. And I think the old system just could not uh, could not handle that. Uh, I think that was the big the big deal why why Soviet uh, Union collapsed. Yeah, and of course, Nash, uh, the sort of the rebirth of the national movement. Let's say, like in Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, people remembering that they're not Soviet citizens, that they're actually Lithuanians, Latvians, Latvians and Estonians. That also played a, played a very huge part. But I think that if it weren't for these uh, sort of policies of rebuilding and publicity, uh, Soviet Union might have continued just like North Korea does. That's very interesting. Going back to our case here in America now, um, some of the people who want socialism, uh, they call it maybe democratic socialism, um, what they seem to be wanting is to take the goods and services and monies of some people and redistribute that to others in the name of um, kind of a kind of a corporate generosity, kind of a welfare state. Are they being honest with us when they say they want to do things like that? Well, I think that they're being very dishonest in how they name things, because I mean, democratic socialism is an oxymoron. These things do not exist. Find me any country that has been socialist and democratic. These, these things or these type of countries simply do not exist. Mm. Look at Soviet Union, look at Venezuela, look at North Korea. These countries are not democratic. 
So whenever someone says, you know, democratic socialism, that's just a, that's just a trick, uh, I would say, a mental trick uh, to make people lay their guard down. So that's one thing. Uh, now, if people want to increase taxes, um, I don't know why they call this socialism. Because, I mean, you can, you can have taxation under a capitalist system. Uh, high taxes, even though I do not like them, and I don't think they are a good policy, they have nothing to do with, uh, with socialism. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're really talking socialism, there is no, even, no point in taxation because the government owns everything anyway. Uh, so, so I think they're confusing things. And I mm -hmm. think they're doing that deliberately to sell whatever message that they're selling. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it would be, I would still oppose them, oppose those people who, who talk about higher taxes, but I might much rather they just talked about higher taxes rather than uh, saying that this is democratic socialism. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, the worst thing that this rhetoric does, it legitimizes socialism, and it, and it uh, sort of uh, brushes off the horrible crimes, both human, economic, and uh, moral, that socialism has done. So even though I disagree with the left, I would, I would think that they would be much more honest if they just talked about taxation, uh, welfare state, whatever they want to talk about, but did not say uh, that socialism is a good thing. Hmm. I'm glad you also touched on the moral. Um, we come out this um, as Christians, certainly, and uh, we see the, the law of God, how that um, people own things and it's wrong to steal it from others. Um, there's an admonition that if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat in the New Testament, in fact. And um, so people are not supposed to be lazy. They're supposed to work hard. And it's good to own things. And it's also good to be personally generous, generous with your own stuff. Giving it to others is a good thing. But it's not good when your freedom is taken from you and you're forced to give your goods uh, to others. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about population growth? It seems that that often comes up in discussions like this where people say, we have too much population growth. Are they missing something? Well, just come back to your previous point, yes. Robbing Peter to pay Paul is always a bad policy, also an immoral one. Now, about population growth, uh, I think uh, that is very much 70s or 80s. Uh, if you look at what people were worried about, the population growth was an issue in 70s and 80s. And if you look at pop culture and all the movies, let's say like Soil and Green and things like that, all those worried about population growth. I don't think anyone is very seriously concerned about uh, unsustainable population growth right now. I mean, if we look... Uh, scientifically at what has happened. I mean, um, the population of Earth has increased tremendously, uh, yet people are living better than ever. So I think there is this fallacy that we are running out of resources. There is this fallacy that uh, the world is coming to an end because there is too many people. I completely disagree with that, and I think serious economists and serious scientists also disagree with that. I mean, if anything, more people means more minds to think about how to solve problems. More people means more people who can work on these solutions or who can work on improving their lives. I mean, people, having people is a good thing rather than a bad thing. And I really don't like the sort of um, some of these notions that are sometimes found in environmental movement where 
people are seen as bad things or that people are seen as destroying the planet. Well, that's just neo-paganism mixed with uh, bad uh, scientific thinking. Yes, yeah, that's a very good point. Christians certainly care for the earth. Um, we want to be good stewards of what God has given to us and take dominion over it for his glory and produce things. Um, do you have any views on energy production? Well, uh, I think it's any sensible person, any sensible gardener takes care of its own garden or, or wants that garden to flourish. Uh, now, if we're talking about energy production, I mean, that is one thing that once again worries people. So I think once again, at some, at some point, uh, especially let's say 10 or I think 13 years ago, then oil prices were very high. Uh, the world or some people were very worried that we're running out of oil or that energy is going to run out. And of course, that's not the case. Uh, so, I mean, we are not running out of energy. And in fact, people are producing more, producing and consuming more energy than ever before. So I don't think we're running out of energy. We're just discovering new ways how to produce energy. And uh, I mean, that's a good thing. Once again, if you look throughout the human history, the earliest man, uh, he, had, he only had his own sort of muscle energy uh, to better his livelihood. Then he invented how to harness the energy of animals. Then came wind uh, or water power. And then came uh, oil, uh, coal, oil, wood, and um, just an endless journey of discovering how to use the world better. I think what people are worried about now is the side effects of energy, uh, global warming and such. Uh, once again, I think that is a serious scientific topic. Uh, but when again, if, uh, if we are to overcome these issues, that will be done by, once again, people coming up with good ideas, uh, people coming up with solutions, how, can, how we can live better and improve our material life being rather than, once again, what is sometimes seen in an environmental movement as a returning back to the basics. So I, I don't think people don't want to return to the basics. People do like energy. People do like electricity. People, people do like to be able to read during the night hours or, a be, or to be warm when it's cold or to be cool when it's warm. So that movement that says, or those people that say, you know, we should go back to the simpler times are, I think, well, simply wrong. Uh, if we are to solve these problems, and I think I'm not optimistic about that, that will come not from regression, but from people coming up with smart ideas and smart solutions. Yes, that's helpful. Going back to uh, your country, Lithuania, um, you grew up there, you, you lived during the time that it was communistic, you saw firsthand socialism. After the change, after the Soviet Union broke up, what happened then? Was it good for Lithuania, and, and did they start to flourish? Yes. The short answer is yes. The long answer, <laughs> obviously, it's more complicated. So obviously, let's say a couple of years, like 91, 92, 93, those were very difficult. Well, I mean, people sometimes, com uh, people sometimes complain about the financial crisis of 2007 or 2008, which meant that, you know, some people lost their savings or some people's portfolios did not grow enough or some people had to give up uh, the house they had or the second house. Well, to that I say, well, sure, that is awful. But in 1991, 1992, entire economy collapsed. Yes. Uh, if we're talking about, about uh, Lithuania, everything changed. Uh, not only did the currency change, 
not only did people have to come up with uh, new ways of producing things, but even the people's thinking had to change. Just to give an example, in Soviet Union, all prices were set by the state. So let's say if you're buying a fork in a shop, that fork would, ha- would have had a price etched into it oh or stamped into it during the process of production. And it was done in such a way or it was done for the purpose that you could only sell that fork for that price that was stamped in the factory. So the first thing that had to change is for people to actually come to a realization that you can agree upon prices. And with, let's say, in 1991, we started experimenting, or Lithuania started experimenting with these shops, which were called commercial shops. But what it meant that uh, next to the price, it was said that this price had been agreed by the buyer and the seller, the sort of agreed upon price. Hmm. So that was the first thing that had to change in people's minds, which can actually price, you can have prices which are agreed upon rather than what are determined by the state. Mm. So these are the fundamental changes that had to happen in people's minds, in people's thinking, uh, etc. But all of that was undoubtedly beneficial. And if you look at how much Lithuania and its people have achieved uh, since 1990, this is incredible. I mean, if you you compare the two places back then and now, uh, these uh, these look very different. I mean, in 28 years, the same country with the same people same natural resources, uh, achieved tremendous economic growth, uh, tremendous liberation of people, and tremendous increase in opportunity. And that has happened precisely and only because uh, socialism or communism was removed. Yes. What about, um, that's fascinating, and it, and it thrills me to, to hear those words, because I think it glorifies God, that kind of a system. Uh, what about uh, crime, crime on the streets and safety for the people? Any changes there under communism versus under freedom? It's hard to talk because uh, under communism, crime statistics were not reported publicly. So let's say, I mean, currently, currently, crime statistics make into the news pages and uh, the media love those, uh, those kind of stories. Well, in the Soviet Union, you did not have these stories. Yeah. If bad uh, crimes did happen, organized crimes did happen, large-scale stealing uh, of goods did happen, they were simply not reported. In terms of do I feel safe on the street, I, feel, I felt safe then, I feel safe now. Then I walk. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I walk in Lithuania. So I wouldn't say that. Some well, some people think that has been a massive increase in crime. Some people say that has just been a change of perceptions because once again, crime was not reported as such right. in, in in Soviet Union. The only time crime was reported is then it was a very clear cut case, and you could say, well, the bourgeois elements were stealing from the state, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But you know, muggings, uh, beatings. Uh, Domestic crime, those usually were not reported. Yes. We have uh, maybe five minutes left. Um, Before you came to the Foundation for Economic Education as their new president, uh, where did you come from and where did you serve prior to this? (laughs) I had an interesting uh, sort of life story. So I left home in 99. I studied for two years in UK. Uh, then I spent four years in Connecticut, Wesleyan, Connecticut. I, so I got my bachelor's degree in United States. I came back to Lithuania in 2005. I served as a teacher in my old high school for a, for a year. I taught kids uh, economics, history, and theory of knowledge. 
Then in 2006, uh, I joined the Lithuanian Free Market Institute, and uh, we did policy work and education work, and I did that for about 13 years back at home. So this is my background of uh, freedom philosophy, policy, and education. I have around uh, 13 years of experience in that. Oh, that's fascinating. And uh, even theory of knowledge. Uh, what, what textbooks did you use for that? That caught my attention. <laughs> well, that's a subject in International Baccalaureate. International Baccalaureate is a private uh, curriculum program uh, that is used in very many uh, good and prestigious schools all around the world. So theory of knowledge is kind of a mixture of philosophy and epistemology. It's asking people the question or asking students the question, how do you know that you know? Yes. So the, the, the usual example we used to give them is we say, well, if someone says there are 10 billion stars in the universe, you just take that number for granted. But if someone says that this, you know, the, the, the bench has wet paint on it, usually people have to touch it to believe it themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting area. And on economics, um, I'll bet you had a lot of fun teaching that now that you were in a free society. Oh, yeah. Uh, obviously, the kids I taught, they were born in free society. They did not know any other kind of society. Right. People, people tend to, remember, to forget bad things pretty fast, and, that, and that's a good thing. Uh, so teaching economics was fun uh, because, once again, International Baccalaureate, we had a pretty strong economics program. So let's say kids in high school pretty much learn the same thing that they would be learning in a sort of freshman and sophomore years in college. And I think that is the sort of a 16, I mean, 15, 16, 17 years old. This is a prime time to expose them to concepts in economics. And it's actually to use their inquisitive minds and sometimes even rebellious mind to explore topics. So I think that age is perfect um, to, to give them the tools that enable them to think. And I think if more people took economics as a subject and if more people taught economics as a subject and taught it honestly, fairly, and and balanced, we would have much less socialists uh, on the streets and definitely less socialists in Congress. Yes. Now, if you had the ear, let's suppose you had the ear of uh, the president and his cabinet right now, and you were to sit down and say, you know what, I've got a lot of background here. I want to share with you my perspective on economics. Would you give him any particular pointers? Well, I don't think president needs pointers. I would just perhaps, using this opportunity, would remind them that freedom is the biggest, uh, the most powerful force in creation ever. Look at any country that is rich. Look at any country that is poor. It is not the. It is not how much oil they have. It is not how big they are. It's not even how much arable land they have. It's how much freedom people have to develop, uh, to build to create and to better themselves. And freedom is the best and probably the only economic policy. That would be those, I would actually, I think, only say that. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And uh, finally, uh, tell us just a little bit more about the Foundation for Economic Education. And if people would like to get in touch with your group or, and or you, mm-hmm. how, would, how would they go about doing that? Well, Foundation for Economic Education is the oldest think tank or economic think tank in the United States. In fact, Foundation for Economic Education was established in 1946. So, in fact, we are that old. 
uh, and Foundation for Economic Education has done many things throughout its years, but for, say, for the past decade, uh, we are concentrating on reaching the young people. We are concentrating on telling the story of freedom or why freedom works to, to the young people. If you want to find out more about us, go to fee.org, which is F-E-E or Foxtrot Echo Echo for, who've been, for, you, for those of you who've been in the military uh, or places <laughs> like that. So it's fee.org. In there, you'll find what we do, how we do it, uh, what kind of materials we have, and what kind of language we use. So once again, c.org, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. But if you're really interested in our organization, that's c.org. Yeah, that's fantastic. And uh, you are married. Do you have any children yet? Uh, yes, I am married. My wife is here with me in Atlanta. Uh, we don't have any children yet, but we are thinking that it's high time to, to pass on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wish you very well, and, and we we trust that the Lord blesses your life. And um, I'm not going to say your name. I'm just going to say this is Z, but could you pronounce your name for our listeners? Jilvenas <laughs> uh, Chilena. <laughs> Very good, thank you. And uh, thank he you. he is the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was definitely a pleasure talking to you. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs>